You know that feeling of being picked last? You know, like the playground, middle school, elementary school, being picked last to play kickball, picked last. You know that feeling? Um, I know that feeling. And uh, I experienced that even, even this summer with y'all. I, um, we had a 4th of July party uh, where we played kiddie pool kickball. And I just was so scared I was going to be, be picked last. And I was standing there, because I'm, I'm older, I'm a little slower, my bones hurt. And I'm, I know my role, I know. And so I, uh, in order to not be picked last, uh, I made our daughters the captains. Uh, so, but I, I still wouldn't even pick to like fourth round. Like, anyway, the, if you were captain of the early Christian church, and you had your draft board, and you were coming up with all of the folks the men and women who would come in to lead the Christian church forward in the first century. Saul would not be on your list, right? This would be the guy you would absolutely pick last. You wouldn't pick him at all. This is a guy who had famously been opposed to the Christian church. He, the last time we saw Saul, if you remember, was at the stoning of Stephen, And at the very end of the passage where Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was killed, it says, and they laid his robes at the feet of Saul. That's this Saul, a man who has been violently opposed uh, to the Christian faith. He's the last person you would ever expect to join the church because he killed people for following Christ. And he was on his way to do that. He was on his way to do that. Did you hear it? In verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And that is when Jesus met him. When the Lord Jesus stopped him dead in his tracks and he made him blind and he gave him sight and he gave him a call on his life. And after that, he was never the same. In fact, he got a new name later. uh, And it's Paul, the Apostle Paul. Now, I want to give you a warning as we kind of jump into this passage. Some of you may be inclined to write off this story as just kind of one of those stories, one of these kind of more famous stories in the Bible, and you don't feel like it really relates to your life very much at all. Um, You might tune it out, Uh, but I want to kind of draw you in and encourage you to, to listen to this story because I think you will find hints of your story. No matter where you are, there's hints that you are in this passage too. And what I mean by that is, even for some of you uh, that we might call covenant children, you grew up in the church, you've never had a Damascus Road experience, right? You don't remember a day where you didn't know the Lord. And you could really disconnect from this passage and you think this is for the rebellious people out there. I want want you to hang with me because I think there's some encouragement uh, to be found for you. Because some of you doubt your faith because you don't have a Damascus Road experience. I want to encourage you uh, to listen and to hear what the Lord may have for you. Um, others of you uh, are in the middle of the story. Maybe you're, during, you're in the part where he's blind. Something's happening and you don't exactly know what. And you don't know how, how the story is going to end up. I, I want you to hear what Jesus does with Saul's blindness. So no matter where you are, maybe uh, you can see 
like Saul, Saul at the end of the passage, Jesus clearly. And that's kind of our hope as we go. So here's how I want to do it. I want to go through basically three movements of this story. Uh, Paul was, uh, Saul was passionately wrong. He was providentially blinded. And then he was powerfully called. So let's work through that first. You can be passionate about a cause, right? And be passionately wrong. Saul was a man full of zeal. He was intense. He was a fanatic. He was passionate about a cause that he believed to be right. Saul is attempting to snuff out this seemingly new faith community because he believed them to be blaspheming his God. He was doing this in the name of religion. He was serving as a hitman for the high priest, searching out all of these new people following what they called the way, the way of Jesus Christ. He would find them, arrest them, turn them in, and in many cases participate in their deaths by stoning. Saul was passionate about his cause, but he was passionately wrong. And it's so interesting that we get this Saul conversion story not once in Acts, not even twice. We actually get this story three times in the book of Acts as you go along. Now, here's some history why this is important. We haven't met Luke yet. Luke is the one who's writing this story. He's writing Acts. But we haven't even met him yet. Luke hasn't actually come and and been a part of the church yet. We meet him soon. Soon you'll see the language start uh, start saying we a lot. But that's not yet. So Luke is writing about an experience that he didn't have. And he's telling a story so far that he must have gotten from somebody else. Who do you think gave him the info? about this conversion story. It was his friend, Paul. Paul is the one recounting exactly what happened here. Even the Stephen passage. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that that passage of where Stephen preaches is the longest recorded sermon in Acts. Luke wasn't there. Who was there? It was Saul. Here's why I bring this up. John Stott makes the point that a lot of us think that Paul's conversion is a sudden thing. That it was very abrupt, kind of out of nowhere, and God changes them just like that. But that isn't true. In Acts 26, Paul's telling this story for the third time to King Agrippa. And he adds a really interesting detail to the story when he says, um, Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, he adds this line that's not here. He says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Okay, what in the world does that mean? To kick against the goads. Uh, well, a goad is an Emily, but besides that, a goad is a, is a tool. I wonder if Emily even knows this. A goad is a tool like a sharp stick or spear that shepherds use to keep the sheep on safe paths. Caitlin, is Caitlin in here? You know this? Okay, goads. We got two goads in the room. All right, goad is this tool used to kind of keep the sheep on a path. And Jesus says to him, why are you kicking against the goads? In other words, Jesus is telling Saul that he has been giving him little stabs all along the way. And he's been pushing him away. In other words, God has been pursuing Saul long before the Damascus road, perhaps even during the stoning of Stephen, perhaps During that stoning, uh, Saul is looking on that scene. And even as he heard the words of a dying saint on grace and forgiveness, as that passage told us, Saul heard the gospel and began to wonder, are they right? 
Could I be wrong? Let me ask you for a minute. Is there anything in your life that you are absolutely passionate about? That you might be passionately wrong about? It's a hard question to to consider, right? Um, I'll illustrate it in a, a funny way at first. If you're interested in learning what you might be passionately wrong about, I recommend marriage for that. Uh, and it's not because my wife, my beautiful wife in the back, she's giving me a look, shaking her head. It's not because she's pointing out wrongs all the time, but you quickly begin to realize, like, especially like your upbringing and perhaps how different you are and, and how maybe wrong you are on certain things. So I'll give you an example early on in our marriage, even before we got married, uh, when Kelly and I were engaged and we we're going through pre- premarital counseling, I always share the story with people when I'm doing premarital counseling. Um, it, it just summarizes kind of where my mind was at this point. The pastor was going through finances and we're talking about how to create budgets and how are you going to like pay for certain bills and all these kind of things. And he was like, so how are y'all going to kind of work out paying for the bills? And I was like, well, she'll have her income. I'll have my income. We'll have our separate accounts and we'll kind of cover the bills. And she looks at me like, what are you talking about? What I was talking about is my parents. That's how they handle their finances. Uh, It's worked for them. They've been married like 45 years. It's worked for them. But apparently that's not how everyone handles their finances in the world. And in that situation, that was the wrong answer. That was not how we were going to handle our finances. We were going to be one account and pay for bills together. I was passionately misdirected. Okay, so there's lots of ways that we are operating out of misdirection that we may not even catch. Let me ask a couple of questions. Some of you in the room might be very passionate about certain styles of being a Christian in the world. And what you are asking of other people because of the style or the type of Christianity that you grew up in. In other words, you may have certain passions that you are calling other people to that may be based more on tradition and family unit and opinion More so than scripture itself. Could that be possible? Uh, On things like, um, I don't know, methods of schools. Methods of how you should raise your children. What discipline should look like. Things like uh, what type of worship is the right type of worship. Things like how people should dress. And what is modesty anyway? A lot of these questions are actually coming more out of tradition and family experiences than than scripture you might be passionate about the opinion of the day whatever the hot topic is that we're discussing in the world you might be passionately wounding others with your opinion and you might be wrong with your political positions or your views on things like classism or sexism or racism Um, i often find that people who are passionate about how they are not racist are often the ones who carry the most hurtful prejudices toward people who are different than them. I'm not racist. There's something behind that. I I read a quote uh, today from someone about fanaticism. And they said fanaticism is only found in individuals who are compensating for secret doubts. It's really interesting, isn't it? Fanaticism is only found in individuals who are compensating for secret doubts. So what are you defensive about? And maybe you're wrongly passionate about that thing. It's worth considering. 
But how do you how do you gauge and, and even find out what you may be wrong about? Well, one step toward that is is simply the Christian principle of humility, right? Humility is a way that we can learn where we might be passionately wrong. Are you willing to be wrong? Here's what I love about Paul's conversion. It's the way that he looks back on it. The way that he reflects. We get this all throughout the New Testament as Paul writes, you know, many, many letters in the New Testament. And specifically in Philippians where Paul gives this incredible resume of all that he had accomplished spiritually. It's like he's handing this resume to everyone to say, look how good I was. And he says it this way. He says, I myself have reason for being confident in the flesh. If anyone thinks they have reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of the Hebrew. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. In other words, he's saying, look how I was killing it in my Jewish religion. And then he says, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's humility on display for us. The humility to being able to admit that you were wrong. Even about something that drove your life for a long time. To admit that you are broken. And that you might be passionately misdirected. Ultimately, as my friend John Stone puts it, he says, Humility is the recognition that grace saves you in spite of you. That grace saves you in spite of you. So here's Saul, passionately wrong, on his way to continue to persecute the church of Christ when Christ of the church knocks him off his path. Verse 3, we see that he becomes providentially blinded as he went on his way. He approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. In verse 8, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. I want to hang on to this theme of blindness for a minute. I just think it's really intriguing. Um, I listened to a a writer uh, tell a story about one time where he became lost inside his hotel room. This is a guy named Ryan Knighton. Uh, And he began to go blind when he was 18, and then he went completely blind in his early 20s. So he was a journalist and a writer, and he would often travel for his work. And so he had an agreement with his wife, this was the days before cell phones, that when he would get to his hotel room, wherever he was, he would find the phone in the room and call his wife to let her know that he was there safely. So he arrived in this hotel room one night, and he went to, felt his way toward the nightstand by the bed where the phone normally would be, and there was no phone. So he's like, all right, I guess they put it somewhere else around here. And he kind of starts feeling along the beds and, and looking above the beds and feeling the walls. And he works his way down one wall to where he finds a coffee table, feels around the coffee table, doesn't find anything except some paper and a pen, so no phone. And then there's a side table there and a sofa, nothing. So he kind of works his way over to the bathroom, still just feeling his way around the room. And and he didn't find a phone in the bathroom. He thought that might be the case. And so he said he worked his way around the entire room. He went every single wall, felt up and down every single wall, no phone whatsoever. And so he just went to bed without calling his wife. 
The next morning, he's woken up very early by the sound of a phone ringing in his room. And so he starts feeling his way toward the sound of the phone, and he finds a coffee table. And he finds the phone on the coffee table by the sofa, and so he answers it, and it's his wife. And he's like trying to explain to her, he's like, uh, I tried to call you last night, but there was no phone. And now there's a phone on the coffee table, but there's not a phone on this coffee table last night. I don't know why there's a phone on the coffee table right now. And he said it started to kind of like freak him out. And so he starts feeling his way back to his bed, but his bed's gone. So he feels his way down the wall and all of a sudden the bed's gone and he doesn't know where he is anymore. And he said in this interview, he said, I started to freak out. Uh, His quote is, um, I'm a grown man and now I'm lost in a hotel room. Turns out the coffee table and the sofa were on the other side of a wall, like an alcove, that he had missed when he felt his way around the room. And so when he was trying to fill his way back into the room, he had a picture of the way his world was working that wasn't correct, right? There was this whole area that he didn't know existed, a world that he didn't know existed just out of his sight. And here's what he said. He said, when you're blind, you just can't assume anything. The problem is you get a picture in your mind. And if you get it wrong, you just live inside the mistake. I think that's incredibly intriguing. Blindness, this idea of living inside the mistake, this whole other world that exists that you may not even know. Blindness is a regular theme throughout Scripture. It often shows a, it's a physical sign pointing to a spiritual reality. Saul was passionately wrong, so Jesus made him physically blind for a time to show him the mistakes that he had been living inside all along. And what was the mistake? Saul was wounding the church of Jesus Christ. Now, does it strike you in this? We've read it a couple of times now. That Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because who was Saul persecuting? He was persecuting the Christians, right? And that's why he's like, who are you, Lord? It was Jesus's followers. Saul had never met Jesus up until this point where Jesus miraculously meets him in this vision manifestation thing. And Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? Here's why this is so intriguing, because Jesus so closely identifies himself with his people. That when they are hurt, he is hurt. Jesus so identifies himself with his people. Yet at the same time, the meaning of this vision is so important because Jesus identifies with his people so that his people might identify with him. In other words, when he's hurt, you are hurt. And when he dies, you die. What this also means is that when he's resurrected, You'll live again. Jesus so identifies with his people so that his people so identify with him. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. And here's what I want to say to some of you who have been Christians for as long as you can remember. Though you may not have a Damascus Road experience, a moment that you can point to some dramatic experience where Jesus called you out of your rebellious life or something. 
You have met this Jesus. Though the method may be different, the message is exactly the same. The method may look different, but the message is exactly the same. And the message is this, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Baby sinners. Teenage sinners, adult sinners, college student sinners. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. His death for your death and his life for your life. And if you have looked upon the resurrection of Christ as your only hope in this life and the next, you are in Christ. Nothing can take that away from you. Jesus identifies with his people. And if you grew up believing on this Jesus for your salvation, then praise God that you have never known a day where you didn't know him. That's a gift. It's a gift that we pray for our girls. We would love for that to be their story. Don't downplay the promises of God for you and your family. This message has never changed. It's all about the resurrection. And others of you have had this experience. You've had the dramatic conversion stories. I've heard some of your stories where God met you in a time of deep darkness and all of a sudden your world changed. That's a gift too. That God would by his kindness intercede and meet you there. But for some of you, you're living inside the mistake still. You're living inside the blindness and you don't know the world that's just on the other side of the alcove. There's a whole other world that we want to offer you in the gospel. You may be living inside the mistake of thinking that you have time to figure this out later. Living inside the mistake that you think you're good with God because your family is good with God and your granddad was a preacher one time. You're living inside the mistake to think that you're so bad that you stand outside of the reach of God's grace. Or the mistake that you're so good that you don't really need it. What's the mistake that you might be standing inside? I want you to stop kicking against the goads. Jesus is calling you. Humility is the recognition that grace saves you in spite of you. Let Jesus open your eyes even tonight. Maybe the scales could fall off and you realize that there's this whole other world that's been there this whole time. This world of purpose. This world of forgiveness and grace. This world of hope. Don't live inside the mistake. Call on this Jesus, the one who saved someone that you would never expect to be saved. That he might save you from yourself. And let's not miss how the story ends. There's this, God takes Saul's passion. I love this. Saul, does, Saul becomes a different person, but he's still the same person, right? Like God takes his passion and he redirects it toward a whole new mission. He is powerfully called to be a witness to the Gentiles of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. My friend Les, who I've quoted before, he, he says what happens next in this passage is truly countercultural for us. Because God never lets Saul be a Christian alone. He sends him to a community of people for two reasons. First, for healing. And second, so that they can help him make sense out of his experiences. I love that. God sends Saul into a community 
One, for healing, and two, to make sense out of what God has been doing in him. Did you catch the potential awkwardness of this interaction with Ananias? It's amazing. God came to Ananias with this vision and he said, I'm sending Saul to you and you're going to give him sight. And Ananias was like, what? Saul? Like he knew this guy. And it's likely that he knew this guy because Saul had participated in perhaps the death of some of Ananias' friends and family. That's amazing. Because what happens is that Ananias says, this is going to be really hard. And he does it. Ananias is one of the unspoken heroes of the early church. We don't talk about this guy much. This is a different Ananias than we talked about before. Ananias was the man. He would have been a first round draft pick for my church kickball team. This guy's awesome. Because what he does is he listens to God. And in humility, he went to Saul And did you hear what he said? What did he say? He said, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. I'm here so that you can see again. This is cross-cultural love. At a tremendous cost. He welcomed an enemy. And called him his brother. Just like Jesus did. He was being used as a tool to bring sight. This is a powerful interaction that leads to a powerful call for Saul. The text ends by saying in verse 20, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he's the son of God and all who heard him were amazed. And said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for that purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. If you're a Christian, I want you to hear me for a second. You, too, are powerfully called by this very same Jesus to tell your story, to tell of the Christ who met you, who saved you, who continues to work in your life and to love you. Some of you wonder, could God ever really use my story? I'm aware of many of your stories and the things that you've been through, some really difficult things. And you wonder, could God ever use that story? Have you seen this story? Right? Have you seen the man who was violently opposed, who killed Christians? And now he's telling a story. This amazing work of God calling him into this mission field. And I just want to tell you, God has called you into this mission field. You may not feel that you have a dramatic story. You may feel that your story is too dramatic. I just want you to see that Jesus redeems people like Saul. And he redeems people like you and me. And he will use you. He will use you. I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to end with this one. This is a story of two of my former students. And usually when I tell stories about people, I change their name. I'm not going to change their name. uh, Because I think they're both actually pretty proud of the way this story turns out. I want to tell you about Cameron and Sam. Um, Sam was a guy who 
would have literally always been picked last on the kickball team. Literally. Uh, and I mean that because Sam is a guy who has been picked on his whole life. Uh, he was bullied his whole life. He struggles with a particular social disorder. And he never really found a place to fit in until college. And he's not sporty. He's very nerdy. He's loud, abrasive. Sometimes he's offensive and he doesn't always know it. He's not good with girls and he struggled his way through school. Cameron knew Sam in high school, uh, but he was nothing like Sam. In fact, Cameron was one of Sam's bullies. Cameron was a jock, big, loud, funny, full of himself. But secretly, he was deathly insecure. And like all bullies, he used his bigness to make others feel small, including Sam. And so it was during Cameron's freshman year at UAH that his mother passed away. And his world began to fall apart. And really, miraculously, during that time, God sent a pastor into Cameron's life. It was the previous RUF campus minister before me. And they began to meet. They began to talk about God's work and Jesus' love for Cameron. And through their interaction, like Ananias to Saul, the the scales fell off of Cameron's eyes. and, And he began to see and he became a Christian. Two years later... After he went to a tech school at first, Sam transferred to UAH. And guess who one of the first people he saw on campus was his first few days of classes? He came across his old bully, Cameron. And Cameron invites Sam to RUF. And for the first time, Sam found a community. And he felt welcomed and really loved for the first time. Um, I knew these guys their senior year. Uh, They graduated together, and Sam told me something his last semester um, that I'll never forget. He said, RUF was the first place that I wasn't treated like I was a monster. Now, the reason I I, want to tell this story is because RUF is not the hero of this story, okay? This isn't like, look at RUF story. Cameron's not the hero of this story, and he would tell you that today. Cameron is uh, studying right now in seminary to be a pastor. This is the work of Jesus. In the life of someone like Sam, in the life of someone like Cameron, and in the community of a place like RUF, we do not, and I'm saying me, I'm saying you, do not naturally welcome people who are different than us. We don't naturally do that. We, we don't naturally embrace people who come from different backgrounds so often, who may look different, who may speak different. Often we feel threatened and scared and insecure by what we may call the other. And that applies to so many different things, right? Someone who's just different than you. But that's why we have to look on the resurrection too. Because Jesus pursued the other. That's you and that's me. We who are different than him. We who threatened him. And ultimately contributed even to his death. 
It is this Jesus who died for you, who is pursuing you even now to remove the scales from your eyes so that you'll stop living in the mistakes. And God, by his grace, I believe, has brought you into this community. I know some of you are just checking out REO up and you're like, I ain't, I ain't staying here. That's fine. But I'm talking to you who've kind of made this place your home. God brought you into this community so that you might at times be uncomfortable. So that you might at times welcome people who feel like monsters. So that you might at times, you who are really full of yourself, be humbled to think less of yourself. What we hope is that RUF at Clemson would be a community that embodies a cross-cultural love and reconciliation on so many different levels. That is full of forgiveness, even between parties in here when it makes no sense to the world out there. That is a full of, uh, of a place where people can feel safe to talk about what they're really dealing with. That is safe to be confronted by friends for the sake of Christ and for the sake of our own souls, a place where even a bully can be called a brother. God can use your story. He can use your story, and you know what? He's already on it. He's at work even now, formulating the ways that he's going to use your story on this campus and way beyond this campus and in the life that God calls you to after this one. And so the only thing we need to do is listen Uh, to what Ananias had to hear, and it's the words, rise and go. Because Jesus is calling you to this work, and it is good to be a part of it. I want to just end with a prayer, and I want to set up this prayer. This is from a book by John Perkins. Um, John Perkins uh, is a pastor. He's in the later years of his life at this point. He was a part of the civil rights movement. He was an activist. Um, He's an author, speaker. He's amazing. And this is a book called One Blood. Highly recommend it. And, and he literally has said, this is my last book, and he calls it Parting Words to the Church on Race. And I want to read you a prayer that he writes at the very end of his last book, in the last chapter of his last book. And if you'll close your eyes, this will be our prayer tonight. Lord Jesus, teach us what it means to love like you love. Calls us to become uncomfortable with surface level friendships. Help us to yearn and hunger for deep fellowship that is real and can be seen and that will light the way for those who are in darkness. Would you set ablaze in our hearts a passion for you, for all of your people? And for your church, Lord, make us one. Make us rejoice when the other rejoices. Make us weep when the other weeps. Lord, make us one for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.